0: Hello, I'm Danny Akin, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Let me invite you to take your Bible this morning and join me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And we're going to give our attention to verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through verse 38 An unexpected messenger with an unbelievable message. God's Word says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin, literally since I do not know a man? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. from her let's pray together father thank you so much for your infallible inerrant inspired word thank you that what it teaches us and tells us is true take your word now and through the ministry of the holy spirit apply it to each of our lives and hearts that we will know you better and as a result of that love you even more we ask and pray this in the name of our savior the lord jesus amen In his very excellent book on Christology, The Person of Christ, Donald McClendon writes, and I quote, "'The virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas, and none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, and that, if we find it offensive, there is no point in proceeding further. The virgin birth is part of Christology 101. Uh, To question it runs the risk of questioning the power of God. To question it without any doubt questions the integrity of the Bible. The Bible teaches us that the Son of God came into this world unlike any person who had ever been born or any person who ever would be born or live. He came by the supernatural means of a virgin conception and a natural birth, though we usually refer to it simply as the virgin birth. In the first century, it was unanticipated. They did not look for this. They did not expect this, although it had been prophesied in Isaiah chapter seven and verse 14. And you even have a hint of it in the proto-evangelium all the way back in Genesis chapter three and verse 15. Our particular passage indeed speaks of an unbelievable message from an unexpected messenger to an unsuspecting maiden by the name of Mary. It was indeed the God of the impossible doing what mere man can only imagine. Thomas Jefferson is a very famous and much respected figure in American history. Uh, He may have been a brilliant politician, but he was a terrible theologian and prophet. In fact, in a letter to John Adams, he wrote, and I quote, the day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus, by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin, will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. Well, we are several centuries past the time of Thomas Jefferson, and yes, even in our post-Christian America in the year 2019, most people still believe in the truthfulness and the historicity of the virgin birth. In fact, the Pew Foundation noted just a couple of years ago that 73% of all persons in America still believe the virgin birth is true. And so we continue to believe in the virgin birth in spite of the negative prediction of Thomas Jefferson. We still marvel at the mystery of it as well as the brilliance of it. And so what I want us to do is just simply walk through these verses together. And there are three truths that I want to highlight from Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through verse 38. Number one, God shows us in this text that he uses the unlikely. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary." Now, we should not read this particular paragraph in isolation from the previous story that began in verse five and goes through verse 25, the story of Gabriel visiting the man Zechariah and also announcing to him that his elderly wife Elizabeth was going to bear a child. God is on the move again is what Luke is telling us in his first chapter. And what a contrast is drawn between the birth of John the Baptist to Elizabeth and Zechariah and the birth of Jesus to Mary. Think about it. John the Baptist is born into a very aristocratic family, a wealthy family in Jerusalem. Jesus would be born to a poor single woman from an obscure town by the name of Nazareth. In many ways, the first chapter of Luke is the tale of two women. Furthermore, as you walk your way through the birth narrative of Jesus, you find five common elements. The Bible has a beautiful, consistent pattern. Uh, when an angel appears and announces a unexpected birth to a woman. You find this very clearly both in the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah, and also the story of Mary. First of all, it begins with the visit of a heavenly messenger. You see this in verse 11 and also in verse 28. You also see, secondly, the perplexity and the questioning of the recipient. This is true in chapter 1, verse 12, and also chapter 1, verse 29. Then there is the delivery of a divine message to Mary in chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. You then see, both with Zechariah and also with Mary, something of an objection to the message that they have received, but then it concludes with reassurance and a sign. You see this to be true with Zechariah. He is struck with the inability to speak until John the Baptist is born, chapter one in verse 19. And with Mary, she is given the promise that with God, absolutely nothing is impossible. Now, as God uses the unlikely, there are two things that seem to stand out to me in verse 26 through 28. First of all, God used a woman from the wrong place. Verse 26 begins, in the sixth month. That is looking back, by the way, contextually to verse 24. After these days, his wife, the wife of Zechariah, Elizabeth conceived and for five months, she kept herself hidden. Well, now we are in the sixth month and the same angel who appeared to Zechariah in the temple now appears to Mary, an angel by the name of Gabriel. Gabriel means God's mighty one. And it's interesting to note that only two angels in the Bible are actually named. One is Gabriel, who is always serving as a messenger. Some people refer to him as an archangel, but he's never called an archangel. And then there is the archangel Michael, who is mentioned twice in the book of Daniel, again in the book of Jude, and also in the book of the Revelation. And so an angel named Gabriel was sent from God. All that we are about to read takes place at the initiative of the gracious activity of our God. And so, God sends His angel, whom is described in the text as a servant of the Lord, sent from God as a servant of the Lord. Now, who is He sent to? Well, he is sent to a woman named Mary, and where does Mary live? Where does Mary reside? She lives in a small town by the name of Nazareth. Uh, Our friend Thabiti Ayabweli says of Nazareth, it was a small backwater town with a bad reputation. Uh, James Edwards in his very fine commentary on Mark describes Nazareth as obscure, insignificant, he notes it is never mentioned even one time in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned in the writings of Josephus. It's never mentioned in any rabbinic literature. It's not mentioned in the Mishnah or the Talmud. In fact, if you'd had a map in the first century, Nazareth would not have even made the print. Furthermore, we estimate at best, there were about four to 500 people who lived in this nowhere city. So Mary is a nobody. From nowhere, Galilee. And by the way, isn't that just like some of us in this room? We're obscure. We're a nobody from nowhere. I always take delight in talking to students here and asking them where they're from. And many times they'll give me a a city or more likely a town. And uh, my next question is, 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 well, what's that close to? And they'll give me another one, and I'll say, well, what's that close to? And finally, we'll get to like a real city, like Atlanta or Charlotte or, you know, something like that. And then I will then, so how many miles is it away from there? And I can finally begin to locate where you are from. You're kind of a a nobody from nowhere. Exactly the kind of men and women God delights in using. So first of all, she is a woman from the wrong place. But secondly, she is also a woman in the wrong condition. Three times in our text, twice in verse 27, and again in verse 34, a reference is made to the virginity of Mary. God sent His angel to a city of Galilee from Nazareth to a virgin betrothed. The virgin's name was Mary, verse um, uh, 24 of 34. She does not know a man. Now, she's betrothed. Uh, Those of you that have studied New Testament should know by now that betrothal is something more than an engagement, but it's less than a marriage. Uh, They have not yet consummated their marriage in the act of sexual intercourse, and so she's never had sex. She is a virgin, and yet she is legally married. And in fact, the only way that a betrothal could be broken was by a bill of divorce, as Matthew's gospel makes very, very clear. So she is a woman betrothed, but she is a virgin. And who is she betrothed to? She's betrothed to a man by the name of Joseph. Joseph is not really given much print in the, in the gospel of Luke. Luke pretty much tells us the birth narrative from Mary's perspective. But in Matthew's gospel in chapter one in verse 19, he is referred to as a just man. The the context would indicate he was a good man. He was a godly man. He was a wonderful man. And in fact, when he found out uh, that his bride-to-be, his betrothed wife was pregnant, uh, he could have taken her before the people and even had her stoned, but because he loved her, he wanted to quietly put her away joseph is also described very importantly in this as being of the house of david which is an indication that god again is up to something because both joseph and mary through different avenues are in the Davidic line and of course we know the promise of God in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David that he would someday bring a son into the world who would reign on his throne forever and ever and so if you're reading this story for the very first time and you see that phrase there he is of the house of David and it's a virgin that he has come to you begin to wonder what is God doing Is God up to something new again? He's been quiet. He's been silent for 400 years. And yet now he's moving and acting once again. He is bringing someone from the house of David. Now, again, think about Mary as we meditate on these verses for just a few moments. She is a single woman. Oh, yes, she's legally married, but at this point in time, for all practical purposes, she is still single. Furthermore, she is a poor woman. She is from a nowhere place with virtually no resources whatsoever. Uh, She's engaged, but as I said, she's basically still not married. She's an insignificant woman from an insignificant town. And yet, look at what the Bible says about her there in verse 28. The angel came to her and said, Greetings, two things. Number one, O favored one. Secondly, he affirms, The Lord is with you. I like the way Eugene Peterson paraphrased this verse Good morning, Mary. You're beautiful with God's beauty, beautiful inside and on the outside. And she certainly was. And yet, do not miss this. Though Mary is special, and she is, she's not sinless. Mary is not responsible for what happens here. God is. All that we see taking place here in the life of Mary, as difficult as it is going to be, is the act of a sovereign God pouring out His grace on a, yes, wonderful, godly, holy, righteous lady. And yet, do not miss the fact she's not a princess. She's just a pauper. She's not rich, she's poor. She's a peasant teen from nowhere Nazareth pledged to the poor village carpenter. The only amazing thing about Mary is that she is the object of God's amazing grace just like you and just like me. So God uses the unlikely. But then number two, God sent exactly what we Needed. Verses 29 through 33 and also verse 35. Gabriel's mission of informing an unmarried and at this moment ineligible young woman to bear a child from an insignificant village that she indeed will bear a child who's going to be the savior of the world and the promised Davidic Messiah. It is jam-filled with problems, problems biologically, but also problems socially as well. And yet again, this is exactly the message that the world needed to hear. Now, God sends exactly what we needed in two ways. Number one, God sent a Savior. Look at verse 29. But she, that is Mary, was greatly troubled, greatly perplexed at the saying of the angel Gabriel, and she tried to discern just what he means, what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Why? Number one, for you have found favor with God, and you will conceive in your womb. In verse 30, Gabriel seeks to calm Mary's fears and put her heart at rest. He wants her to understand that God has has chosen to place His favor, His kindness, His grace upon her. I like to paraphrase it like this, Mary, don't be afraid. The smile of God is upon you. And in what ways is the smile of God upon her? Well, verse 31 tells us, first of all, you're going to conceive in your womb. And secondly, you're going to bear a son. In fact, if you read this in the original text, uh, the, the, the 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 conjunction and is so very pronounced. In fact, even in English, I marked it in my Bible, and in fact, the word and occurs one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times between verse 29 and verse 33. It's just like he's building, putting building block on top of building block on top of building block as he unfolds for her what God is going to do in terms of showing his favor upon her. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now, we should not miss and run past too quickly the beautiful and high Christology that you already find in the early chapters of the gospel of luke just look at the names and titles again very quickly he's called jesus in verse 31 meaning the lord saves he will be the son of the most high verse 32 he is a son of david verse 32 He's from the house of Jacob, verse 33. He is called holy in verse 35. He is the Son of God, verse 36. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds of this, but uh, listening very carefully to how I say it, because I do believe this is a proper and accurate theological statement and proposition. There was a time when Jesus was not. There was never a time when the Son of God was not. There was a time when the person, the human, Jesus, was not. He came into existence at the conception of Mary through the power of the Holy Spirit in the first century. But there has never, ever, ever been a time when the Son of God is not. And so there's a beautiful blending here both of His humanity, but also of His deity as well. And so God sent a Savior. But then secondly, God sent His Son. He tells us there in verse 32, He will be great. He will be mega. Secondly, He is the Son of the Most high God. That is a translation of the beautiful Hebrew phrase El Elyon, which is a name that is exclusively given to the one true God in the Old Testament. Now, there are two things that we can observe about the fact that God sent His Son. First of all, He is the promised one. Verse 32, He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God, first of all, will give to Him the throne of His father, David. This is a reference to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. Secondly, though, he will also, verse 33, reign over the house of Jacob, which is a reference to the Abrahamic covenant found both in Exodus chapter 12, but also again in, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 12, and also in Genesis chapter 28. Furthermore, drawing, I think, Both from Psalm 110, that great uh, messianic psalm that tells us that the Savior will come into this world as a king priest after the order of Melchizedek. I think that the illusion of that psalm is running through this passage, but also clearly I think he is drawing from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, where he tells us, and of his kingdom, there will be no end after all. Isaiah said in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So he is the promised one, but then also he is the pure one. Look at verse 35, and... The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit, he is responding to her question of how can this be, since I'm a virgin, in verse 34, I don't know a man. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the child to be born will be called holy. Later, the Bible expressively states that this one who is holy is sinless, and may we never, ever move away from that doctrinal affirmation because if he was not sinless himself, then he could not be a Savior. He would need a Savior just like you and just like me. But no, he indeed is the Holy One. He is the sinless one. He is the pure one by the divine agency, of his birth being through the means of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. As one man said, he is uniquely one who had a heavenly father and an earthly mother, but he had no heavenly mother and he had no earthly father. Furthermore, in spite of what some radical uh, feminist theologians have put forward in recent years, there is not an idea whatsoever of divine rape in this text. The language is very chaste. Uh, The language is very, very careful. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you clearly. Uh, The Bible here is drawing from the language of the Old Testament where the hovering presence of God uh, was there in the divine cloud over the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40 and verse 35. Again, James Edwards says it exactly right. The divine cloud that established the Lord's presence in a place, the tabernacle, now does so in a person, Jesus. The divine overshadowing of the earthly tabernacle was a foreshadowing of the living tabernacle, the incarnate Son of God. And of course, John adds his commentary to this in John chapter 1 and verse 14, where he tells us, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He is holy, He is the Son of God. And just as an aside, don't miss the Trinitarian nature of verse 35 the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High. And that which is born to you will be the Son of God. So God uses the unlikely. God sent exactly what we needed. And finally, God can do the impossible. Verse 37 is at the center theologically of this passage. I would argue it's at the center theologically of this book. In fact, I would even go so far as to say it is at the center theologically of the whole Bible. Literally, the Greek text reads in verse 37, because not will be impossible with God every word. Because not will be impossible with God every word. Now, the Christian Standard Bible, the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, all translate it the same way, for nothing will be impossible with God, which is a very fine rendering of the original text. Interestingly, the NIV says it this way, for no word from God will ever fail. And the New Living Translation is very close, for the word of God will never fail. I do agree with those Bible teachers who say this verse echoes. Uh, Genesis chapter 18 and verse 14, and God taking away the bareness of Sarah, the wife of Abraham, where God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? In other words, both Genesis 18 and Luke 1 are telling us that what God says He will do, He can do, and what God says He will do, He will do. And this is made very clear in the miraculous birth of two boys, a boy named John and a boy named Jesus. First of all, the miraculous birth, number one, Mary a virgin. She's still perplexed, according to verse 34. She said to the angel, how can this be? Since I do not know a man, since I am a virgin. And verse 35, which we just looked at, anticipates the thunderous declaration of verse 37. The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. He will be the Son of God of God. And I love my hero's commentary on this reality, Adrian Rogers, who was absolutely right when he said, if you have difficulty believing in the virgin birth, then your God is too small. Yes, God indeed has the power to conceive a baby, even in the womb of a virgin. But then there's miraculous birth number two, Elizabeth, who was an elderly woman. Verse 36, now behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, she's well past childbearing days, she's also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Hear the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and John Uh, serve as a confirmation and an encouragement of God's power and God's promise to Mary. It's interesting to note, and I'd never seen this before until I began studying for this particular message. It's interesting to note that there are some remarkable parallels in the story of Abraham and Sarah with Elizabeth and Zechariah. But there's also some interesting parallels between Hagar the mother of Ishmael, and Mary. You say, how so? Well, take uh, Sarah and Abraham, and take Elizabeth and Zechariah. They had power, they had status and position in their day. Uh, No doubt they were wealthy. What did Hagar and what did Mary have? Only one thing, the promise of God that he would take care of them. In response, Mary provides what many have called the quintessential model of faith in verse 38. Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. The Greek word doulos. I am the slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What a picture. What a portrait of faith we see in Mary. May God's word become a reality in my life. In essence, he says, what God wants, I want. Nothing else really matters. And again, James Edwards perceptibly notes, years later, in deep distress on the Mount of Olives, Jesus will pray words closely reminiscent of his mother Mary. There he would say, not my will, but your will be done. As we close, think about again the contrast of what God is doing in Luke chapter 1 with Zechariah and Elizabeth on the one hand and Mary on the other. Zechariah and Elizabeth, oh, they had all the proper credentials. They came from a very noble lineage and a very noble family. Mary had no credentials at all, she was a poor single woman. Zechariah and Elizabeth received their birth announcement in Jerusalem, the the temple, the holy place, the capital city. Mary receives her birth announcement in Backwater, Nazareth. You could not find it in those days on any map. Zechariah was a priest. Mary was a woman. Zechariah was well-connected and financially secure. Mary was a nobody with nothing. Zechariah and Elizabeth were more like Abraham and Sarah, but Mary was a lot more like the outcast by the name of Hagar. And at the end of the Zechariah Elizabeth narrative, you see Zechariah responding in unbelief. But in Mary, you see unbelievable confidence, trust, and faith. What a lady! What a woman of God is Mary! So the angel has done his work. Verse 38 concludes our narrative, and the angel departed, and he left her. God looked down and saw our sin and hopelessness. I will send them a savior, he said. God looked down and saw our confusion and despair. I will send them an everlasting king, he said. God looked down and saw our hatred and our wickedness. I will send them the Son I love, he said. So the virgin-born, sinless Savior came, and he forgave us. The eternal and everlasting King came, and he now reigns in us forever. And the Son of God's perfect, never-ending, everlasting, steadfast covenant love came. and He has reconciled us both to God and to one another. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. It really was an unbelievable message from an unexpected messenger. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the birth narrative that we find both in Matthew and also Luke, but especially the one we have looked at this morning. And Lord, we see in Mary ourselves, not in the sense that Oh, that we may be as noble and as godly as she. What a remarkable woman she was. But, Lord, she was a nobody from nowhere, but not in your eyes. You take delight, as 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us, in using the weak, using the insignificant, using the nobodies to do something great. Lord, may we have the same heart as Mary. Here am I, your slave. May it be in my life, as you have said. We ask and pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit SCBTS.edu.